2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you will. She's saying it right. I messed up on that first chorus. I don't know if you noticed that. No. I did. <laughs> but I was into it. I couldn't stop. Oh, well. She got it right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. And uh, I, I want to talk to you about, kind of, about some New Year's resolutions. And I know this is a little bit early. Uh, normally, we talk about New Year's resolutions maybe on the last Sunday of the month. The next week's Christmas. The week after that, it's already January 1st, and by then, it's too late. Uh, this is the time for New Year's resolutions. Do you have any? You should. Uh, if you're not actively trying to improve, then there's something wrong. Uh, you, ought to be, you ought to be setting goals for yourself, physically and spiritually. You ought to have some things that you want to do this year to try to improve. Hey, even if it only lasts for two weeks like it normally does, right? It's a New Year's resolution. It's not a whole year resolution. I guess that's why we call it that, because it usually lasts for the new year, and that's about it. Uh, but it's something, it is something that we ought to at, at least attempt and try to do. Uh, I hope you have some New Year's resolutions that you set last year that you're still doing uh, right now. It's, it's a great way to get a new habit started. Uh, and again, like I say, physically, I mean, we ought to be constantly trying to improve ourselves physically. But even more importantly, we ought to be trying to improve ourselves spiritually. Have you ever heard of the phrase, turn over a new leaf? My dad used to say that all the time. You know, he, uh, I think it's about time for you to turn over a new leaf. You know, he used to say that to us, and, and, or he would see some improvement, and he would say, yeah, what are you, turning over a new leaf, huh? And it's just, I don't, never knew what it meant. I, we always just assumed from the sound of it, you know, you would probably assume like I did that turning over a new leaf meant flipping a leaf over, right, <laughs> and, and having a new start. But, but really, what sense does that make? I mean, what does it mean to flip over a new leaf? I mean... The other side of the leaf is the same color and the same everything as the leaf on the, on the other side, right? Uh, if the leaf dies, the whole leaf is dead. Not, there's not a new side on the back side of it. So I started digging into it a little bit to try to figure out what that meant. It turns out that the term actually refers to turning the page of a book. And it dates all the way back to the 1500s. And the, I guess the implication is that if you're turning over the previous page which is, you know, bad behavior, starting on a new page, you're starting fresh, you can start at the very top of the page and write the whole thing new again. Uh, and and, and a kind of a pretty interesting little story along with that, the, somebody accused Oscar Wilde, and of course he was, he was an author from, from years ago, but uh, he, he promised that he was going to make a change, and he never made good on that promise, and so somebody that, that uh, he had talked to about this confronted him about it, and he said, he did plan to turn over a new leaf, but he hadn't gotten to the bottom of the page yet. When he got to the bottom of the page, he was going to flip over the new leaf and start again and make good on his promise. And honestly, that's the problem with turning over a new leaf. It's, it's, it's too easy to fill it back up with the wrong things. A definition that I read said turning over a new leaf means to start to act or behave in a better or more responsible way. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it's bad to act in a more responsible way. Or, or act in a better way, but there has to be more to New Year's resolutions to live right than to just turn over a new leaf. It, it, it may involve that, turning away from bad spiritual habits or, or you know, making a determination to get into some good spiritual habits, but it has to be more than that or it's not going to last. We find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I'm turning it off. It's a little bit too loud in my ears. I don't know if you can hear it or not. But what a great verse. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. 
Behold, all things are become new. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning for just a little bit, this idea. Uh, let's get to the root of the problem and talk about how we can go from acting right to being right. The title of the message this morning is this, New Leaf or New Life? New Leaf or New Life? Which is it going to be for you this year? Let's look at some ways that we can have a new life in Jesus Christ for this coming year. Let's pray, and then we'll look at a few things here this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Uh, again, we thank you for an opportunity to be here. What a tremendous thing and a, and a privilege it is to be able to open up your word. And I pray that you'd help us to never take that for granted. I pray that you'd help us to not take it lightly. What a privilege we get to hear from the God of heaven in his word. And God, I pray that you'd give me the words to say this morning that would help us to be the most like you that we can possibly be. I pray that it will help us to make a determination going into this year that we're going to be right with you and live right and, and not just act right, but be right. And God, I pray that you use the message in our hearts this morning in the way that only the Holy Spirit can. Thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn over to Revelation 22. The first thing, if we're going to have a new life instead of just a new leaf, is come to Jesus. The only way for a relationship to really start is to formally meet the other person. It's pretty hard to have a relationship with somebody you've never met, right? Could you imagine if my wife and I started talking, and, uh, and honestly, we met just, just very briefly, uh, and then we started talking and writing and everything else, and if our relationship had stayed that way, this is pretty funny, because by the time uh, my wife was, she was already out of college, I, I had just gotten out of college, but she had been out for a couple years and, you know, was single, and obviously, I mean, this was back before you know, everybody's taking selfies and, you know, pictures with their cameras and, you know, thousands of pictures a day and everything else. So she didn't even have any pictures of herself sitting around, really. And so I finally, I was like, uh, you know, I hate to admit this, but I went through the entire summer where I was kind of, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, ask her to, you know, to, uh, uh, to date, if you will, or, if, you know, if we were going to, you know, uh, start writing back and forth or talking or whatever. I mean, I was traveling through the whole summer in a singing group, and so I didn't even really get the chance to to correspond with her because I never knew where I was going to be next. And, you know, if, if she sent a letter and it didn't get there in time, and it, was just, it would just have been a mess. And so we went through the entire summer really without having much communication at all until I got back uh, uh, at the end of the summer. And then we started talking, and, and by that time, I, I had seen her so briefly, I forgot what she looked like. And so I said, hey, can you send a picture or something? You know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm obviously, we, we have this, you know, we had, we had great conversation and writing back and forth and talking back and forth. I said, you know, I, honestly, it doesn't matter that much, but I, I can't remember what you look like. Can you send a picture? And she said, well, the only one I have is like seven or eight years old. I said, well, send it. I can't even remember what you look like even from... Uh, you know, seven or eight months ago, let alone seven or eight years ago. So she sent me a picture and, you know, I don't know, oh, that's right, that's what she looked like, you know. But could you imagine if that's where our relationship had stayed? You know, one day on the phone I said, hey, uh, would you marry me? And she said yes. And okay, well, we're, you know, I live in Indiana, you live in Virginia, so I guess we're just going to have to do the ceremony uh, over the phone and, and we'll get married and we'll, we'll have this, you know, marriage and this relationship and all that stuff. But we live in separate places, so I guess that's just the way it's going to have to stay. That relationship wouldn't last very long. It wouldn't be very good. I had to come and meet her in person and meet her in person again and again and again. And then I actually had to come for the wedding and, and be there on the wedding day, right? To say I do and, and do all the stuff that you do on the wedding day, right? Uh, that's exactly the way that the relationship is with Jesus Christ. There was a lot of people, you know, if, if you just threw some random name out there and perhaps I had heard of that person before, I couldn't say that I had a relationship with that person just because I knew who they were. 
right? But that's what a lot of people want to do with Jesus Christ. They know who he is, so they assume they have a relationship with him. You can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ until you come to him as your Savior. Revelation 22 and verse number 17 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Living right can only begin when you know the king of righteousness and when you have a relationship with the king of righteousness. So many people have attempted to be a better person at the start of a new year, and they only to fail miserably because there's more to, be a good, to being a good person than just trying to be good. Even if you do know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's more to being a good person than just trying to be good. If you try, you're going to fail. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. You need to let him do that work for you. But Jesus Christ has to be your Savior in order for him to make an impact on your life for righteousness. How can you come to Jesus Christ? Well, you follow his plan for salvation. Every one of us is a sinner. The Bible makes that very clear. And Jesus Christ took your sufferings. He suffered because of sin. Nobody ever suffered like the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. There is no grief like his, none. You might say, well, many other people have been crucified. Look at the two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus Christ. They went through the same thing that he did. He was crucified. Now, maybe he, he, he was subjected to a little bit more whipping and beating and a little bit more ridicule, and you know they spit on him, and they ripped his beard out, and they put that crown of thorns on there, but that's not much more than what they do to, the, to most of those criminals back in the day, especially if they were being crucified. No, you don't understand what happened there. He suffered the pain and the separation from the Father that he had been joined together with for all of eternity. That's why he said when he was hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was a relationship that they had going all the way back to, to, to eternity infinite. There was no beginning. Jesus Christ, God, never had a beginning, and he'll never have an ending. And they had that relationship from all of eternity past, and God turned his back on his son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Jesus died on the cross, the sins of the world were crushed upon him. That's why God had to turn his back on him. All the eternities were compressed upon Jesus Christ. Nobody can ever describe how much he suffered. Somehow, somewhere, that sin had to be paid for. And Jesus Christ, as my substitute, took my sin. He took my shame. He took my separation from God. He took my sorrows. He took my sufferings. And as the song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. What a wonderful Savior. Isaiah spoke of the Savior 700 years before he came. And oh, what a Savior he turned out to be. You know, to reject that wonderful gift of Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sin, it's such a great sin, that it's the only sin that will condemn you to an eternity in hell. You can be a murderer and be forgiven. You can be an adulterer and be forgiven. You can be a bank robber and be forgiven. You could be a serial killer and be forgiven. But you can never be forgiven for rejecting Jesus Christ. That is the only sin that will end up sending you to hell for all of eternity. Won't you accept Jesus Christ? That is how to have a new life in Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, you have to come to Jesus. But the second thing is, you have to crucify the old man. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Oh, we all have that old man, don't we? That sinful, selfish nature. I, saw, uh, I heard a story about a, 
uh, a crowd of people. They, they were standing around. Um, uh, this, it was just a cold winter's day, and they were standing in front of a pet shop window, and there was a whole litter of puppies, and they were watching them all snuggle up to each other and, and uh, you know, just, just in this big little conglomeration. And one woman laughed, and she said, oh, what a, what a delightful picture of brotherhood. Look at how those puppies are keeping each other warm. And one of the men that was standing there next to her, he said, no, ma'am, they're not keeping each other warm. They're keeping themselves warm. And that's, that's the way that a lot of us are, right? I mean, it might look on the outside like we're doing it for somebody else, but most people have that selfish desire. Two friends met for a dinner at a restaurant, and, and uh, they, they both asked for the fish filet. And uh, just a few minutes later, the waitress came out and brought their food, but for whatever reason, they had two pieces of fish on the same platter. And they had, they had a couple different plates, and so the, the one guy that she kind of set it down in front of, he picked it up, and, and there was one uh, fish fillet that was quite a bit bigger than the other one. And so he reached over to his friend, and he kind of scooped the little one off onto his friend's plate. And that friend kind of looked back, and he said, boy, you have some nerve, don't you? He said, what are you talking about? He said, you gave me the little piece of fish. You kept the big one for yourself. He said, well, what would you have done? He said, well, if it was me, I would have given you the big one. He said, well, that's what I have on my plate right now, so what's the problem? <laughs> they both started laughing about it. But the sad reality is we often think only of ourselves, and that attitude often comes in front of not just others, but Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24 says this, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the afflictions and lusts. There has to be a point where you come to the end of yourself. Turn over to Psalm 38. David got to that point in his life. And I'm not going to read all of this psalm. I'm going to skip through and read a few verses for you. But David, David had a whole lot of things to be proud of. David was anointed king at a very young age. And of course, he wasn't an easy ride. It wasn't an easy road. He had to fight off a lot of different demons, if you will. He had to fight against Saul. He had to fight against himself. But all of that brought David really to the end of himself. How can you be proud when you're in that position? And I think that's the point, not, not think, I know that's the point that God wants all of us to get to in our own lives. But you see in Psalm 38 and verse 6, David said, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. Verse 8, I am feeble and sore broken, I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Verse 10, my heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eye, it, is also, it also is gone from me. Verse 13, but I as a deaf man heard not. I was as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I, was at a, at, thus I was as a man that heareth not, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear me, O Lord my God. Verse 21, forsake me not, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. You see this, this process, and if you were to read the whole psalm, you could see it even more. But David was realizing that he does not have the strength in and of himself. He does not have the ability in and of himself. And he realized where he was at. This is me. I need you. David came to the end of himself. Jesus had to bring his disciples to that point. In fact, turn over to Luke chapter 5. Again, I'm not going to read the whole story but Jesus had to bring his disciples to that point before they could really be used by him. In John 21, the disciples, obviously they were fishermen, they'd fished all night and they didn't catch anything. And I can imagine how humiliating that must have been for them because they were, they were fishermen. They knew what they were doing. 
They had this, this livelihood. They, they were experts at what they did, and they fished all night, and they caught nothing. And in one of his post-resurrection appearances, which is exactly when this happened, the disciples, when they realized that Jesus was dead, they said, well, nothing left for us to do. Let's go fishing. And that's when they found themselves out in that boat all night with catching nothing. But Jesus came to the disciples after they had done their best and came up short. They came up empty. They were good fishermen. It's just that the fish weren't biting until Jesus came. He redirects their efforts, and their, their nets could barely hold that catch. The, the Bible describes it as the fact that their boats began to sink because there were so many fish. And all they did was do exactly what Jesus told them to do and cast their nets on the other side. What's the difference? I mean, the, the boat's not that wide, right? They, they threw their nets on one side, and they didn't catch anything. They threw the nets on the other side, and there were so many fish they couldn't even handle it. That's what Jesus Christ will do in a life, but sometimes Jesus lets us get to the end of ourselves. To the point where we have to admit that we've caught nothing. We've produced nothing. We've amounted to nothing. My dad used to ask that all the time. Think you'll ever amount to anything. It was just a conversation starter, I guess. And I, I never knew what to say. I don't think my brothers ever knew what to say either. Think you'll ever amount to anything? Well, I hope so. Right? But, but in our own strength, we can't. And we get to the point sometimes, so many times in our lives, where we think, I'm good at this. I'm, I'm pretty successful. I, I'm, I'm not a bad Christian, especially when you look out and see the state of Christianity today, and I compare myself to a lot of the other Christians that are out there. I'm not too bad. I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm a pretty successful Christian. But we get so filled up with ourselves and so filled up with pride, God can't, can't use us in that position. He has to get us to the point where we have come to the end of ourselves. He prefers to work through empty and yielded vessels that, that bring trust to the table and full glory to him. He isn't so interested in adding to our efforts. Right? That's what we think. Well, if I go out there and do all this work, then God will add to that effort, and then I'll be successful. We, we could take the credit if, if that was the case. He wants us to be empty. He performs great miracles through these vessels with nothing but childlike trust and sincere faith. Look, look at Luke chapter 5 and verse number 5. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Then, nevertheless, at thy word, I'll let down the net. You know, I, I don't know if that was Peter on his knees just saying, fine, tell me what to do and I'll do it, or if he's just saying, well, you, you said it, so I'll do it. I'll make you feel good. You, nevertheless, we haven't caught anything yet, but you said it, so I'll throw it on there, right? But that's the point that God wants us to get to in our lives. He wants us to get to the point where we are down on our knees because we cannot do anything else. When we try to stand tall, and we try to stand tall before God. That's when he has to break our legs and drop us to our knees many times. And we don't like the way that feels. It hurts. But coming to the end of ourselves helps us to realize that it's not about me. It's all about him. And when we start to give him the credit and we start to give him the glory and we start to recognize that he's the one that gives us all the power that we have, then something really meaningful can happen. Then something truly successful can take place. That's what it means to follow him. It's this, this posture of humility that's, that's, that's demonstrated by abandoning our perceptions, by abandoning our experiences and abandoning our tactics and everything else that we think we have to do to be successful and embrace Jesus' leadership and, and, and execute what sometimes to us seems to be counterintuitive. It didn't make sense for them to go throw the nets on the other side, but that's what Jesus told them to do. And when they did it his way, it became successful. 
Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That's when we become successful. But we must come to the end of ourselves. And most Christians will never experience that. Because you know what that takes? It takes humility. It takes, it takes a true, genuine desire to be right with God because that's a tough prayer to pray. God, bring me to the end of myself. You know why most people won't pray that? Because they don't want to put up with the, the hurt. They don't want to put up with the pain. They don't want to put up with what, what could come by God bringing us to the end of ourselves. And we'll never be useful in God's service in that way. When we're not willing to trust him and do what he says, then we may not yet be to the end of ourselves. Turn over to Galatians chapter 2. When we're not willing to trust him, that means that the old man is alive and well. Tip, tip the hat to Christ. Hey, I acknowledge that you're there. Good to see you. Glad you're in my life. But not trusting our heart to him. When we get to that point, the lessons to bring us to the end of ourselves can be pretty painful. Sad result really can be a life that's lived in opposition to God's purpose. Still being aware of his presence, I know he's there, and I, I acknowledge that he's there, and I'll show up to church, and I'll, I'll make sure I'll pull up my Bible from time to time, and I'll, I'll pray before meals, and I'll, you know, I'll say a little prayer here and there when, when God brings somebody to my mind, but it's all about me. It's not about him. It's not about having his presence, just giving assent to his identity but living life my way, maybe even resenting his authority because I can't do exactly what I want to do. Oh, there's so many resentful Christians. They're doing what God wants them to do, but they're doing it resentfully. If only I didn't have this life, I could go live and do that. And if only I wasn't following Christ, then I could have this. And only, and they're resentful. God can't use that because it, it's all about us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says this. Think about this. Can you say this with the apostle Paul? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I'm alive, but I die every single day. I wake up in the morning and I say, God, this day is yours. You do through me what you want to do. That's what Paul is saying. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Our lives ought to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Hey, do you know what Christian means? Christian means little Christ. That's who we ought to be. We ought to be walking around as little Christs because his image is reflected in us. And it's not me doing it. It's not, it's not my power. It's him through me. That's the way we ought to live our lives. That's how we have to live our life if we want to be successful as Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 31, I die daily. I die daily. Do you have a ritual where you wake up every morning and say, I'm dead to myself? Or you say, well, I'm going to get up and go be successful today. I'm going to get up and go see what I can accomplish today. No, what we really ought to be saying is, I'm going to get up and go see what God can accomplish through me today. What we have to realize is that the greater yield for Christ happens when I yield myself to Christ. And isn't that the whole purpose of why we're here on this earth in the first place? It doesn't matter if you're successful as a businessman. It doesn't matter if you're successful as, a, as an athlete or successful as whatever else. Those things, at the end, count for nothing. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what I ought to be trying to be successful at. What can I accomplish for Christ today? And the only way that that happens is if I die 
to myself. And I come to the end of me. To live a new life in Jesus Christ, you must come to Jesus. You must crucify the old man. And lastly, turn over to Romans chapter 6. You must commit to serving Christ. If you're going to die to one thing, then you must be alive to something else. That's how it's supposed to work in the Christian life. If we're dead to self, then we should be alive to God. It says this in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. A man came and asked George Mueller the secret of his service. George Mueller was very well known as a, as a praying man. And, and one of the things that he uh, did the best, I suppose, was that he started orphanages. And all over England, he, he, he planted these orphanages with, with no money. And God, he saw God grow these orphanages, and, and they got hundreds and thousands of kids into these orphanages. And every single day was a struggle because many days they didn't know where the food was going to come from. But that turned George Mueller. Boy, he got to the end of himself because he knew it wasn't about him. He couldn't provide for these kids. He knew that only God could do that. And so every day he would wake up and he would pray and beg God, please provide today. And so many stories. You know, one time a, a, a bread truck broke down right out in front of the orphanage. And there was no way that they could get the bread to the places that they were supposed to be. So they donated all of the bread in that truck to the orphanage. Same, same thing happened with a milk truck. Broke down in front of the, I don't know why they kept driving past the orphanage. You know, probably... <laughs> I drive past that orphanage, there's probably going to be something there that makes my truck break down and I'm going to have to donate everything to the orphanage. But God did that for them. And George Mueller, when somebody asked him what is the secret, he said this. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends, and since then I have studied to show myself approved only to God. What a way to live, dead to self and alive to God. And, and, and again, we get so wrapped up in, in worrying about what other people think about us. Well, I hope everybody else in the church thinks I'm a good Christian, so I'm going to do the things that make people think I'm a good Christian. I'm going to say the things that make people think that I'm a good Christian, when all along, God knows whether you really are or not. It doesn't matter whether other people think you're a good Christian or a bad Christian. It matters what God thinks. And if we're living only for his approval, then it's going to go far beyond living to please the people around us, living to please the people that we work with, living to please the people that we go to church with. Boy, God's standard is a whole lot higher standard than the people that you go to church with every single week. I can tell you that much. What a way to live, dead to self, alive to the approval of God only. If I'm worried only about what God thinks, then I will live right. I will be dead to self. I will be alive to him. I will be open to whatever it is that he wants me to do. I will be willing to serve. I will be willing to be involved. There's no better way to win the approval of God than to serve him. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. See, the more you love him, the more you'll want to serve him. And I, I'm not saying this blanket across the board because I know there's different situations and circumstances that people go through in their life. But when you have a Christian that's not willing to serve, you can almost guarantee that they do not love Jesus Christ the way they should. I'm not saying they're not saved, but the more you love him, the more you want to serve him. 
You look at a relationship between a husband and wife that's, that's a great relationship. You know what that relationship is marked by? Serving. What can I do for you? I, I want to I help you. I want to serve you. That, that makes a great relationship. And it works the same way with God. Well, if you want to have the relationship with him, and if you do have that relationship with him, it's going to be marked by service. God, what can I do to serve you today? That's what our attitude will be. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24 says this, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. There's a song that we sing, After all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely after all he's done for me? I don't know if it's based on this verse or not, but that verse fits exactly with that song. Only. If you're only doing one thing, if you're only doing something, then that means you don't have time for everything else. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Consider how great things he hath done for you. Boy, when you look at what God has done for us in our lives, you look at the life he's given us since we came to know him as our Savior. How can you do anything less than serve him? How can you do anything less than give him all your life? How can you do anything less than live for him completely after all he's done for me? The more you realize he's done for you, the more you love him, and the more you love him, the more you want to live for him. What a, what a wonderful cycle to get stuck in. But so many Christians live outside of that wheel. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for what he's done for me, but I, I don't have time to serve. The less you serve, the less room there is for that love. And the less love, the less desire there is to serve. That's the cycle that most Christians are stuck in. But boy, what a, what a, great, what a great way to turn over a new leaf. What a great way to live that new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Realize what he's done for you. And love him because of what he's done. And the more you love him, the more you're going to want to serve. And the more you serve, the more you're going to love him. And it's just that cycle of, tell me what else I can do to live for him and to serve him. It should be a great year to take the step of faith to give your all to Jesus Christ. Franklin Roosevelt obviously was the president of the United States during some of World War II. But during his presidency, he had, a, he had an advisor that was very close to him by the name of Harry Hopkins. Probably not a name that you've ever heard of. It's not a name that I, that I was very familiar with. But during World War II, when his influence was at its peak with Roosevelt, Hopkins didn't ha have any, he held no official cabinet position. He was not anything in uh, Roosevelt's administration other than advisor. And Hopkins' closeness to Roosevelt caused a lot of people to look at him as this shadowy, sinister figure and really criticize Franklin Roosevelt for having this guy there with him in no official position or anything else. And, and really, a lot of his, his allies even, but, but especially his, his opponents, uh, thought that he was a major political liability to the president. And, and a political enemy of his, and kind of friends, you know, personally, but political enemies, came and asked Roosevelt one time, why do you keep Harry Hopkins? Uh, so close to you. you. You surely realize that people don't trust him, and, and without them trusting him, they're not going to trust you as much. Why do you keep Harry, Harry Hopkins so close and, and, and uh, have him there with you? And, and this is, this, these are the words that Roosevelt said in reply. He said, someday you may well be sitting here where I am now as president of the United States. 
And when you are, you'll be looking at that door over there and knowing that practically everybody who walks through it wants something out of you. You'll learn what a lonely job this is. And you'll discover, for the need, you'll discover the need for somebody like Harry Hopkins who asks for nothing except to serve you. Winston Churchill rated Hopkins as one of the half dozen most powerful men in the world in the 1940s. And the, the whole source of Harry Hopkins' influence and his power was his willingness to serve. He didn't want anything from the president. He just wanted to serve him. What can I do? What, how can I help you? Franklin Roosevelt realized that. You know, he said, man, everybody that, everybody that comes through that door wants something out of you. This guy doesn't want anything but to serve. What a great relationship to have with Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't want anything out of you. Hey, if God blesses me, great. And God will bless you for, for living for him. Make no mistake, God's not going to, to leave you hanging when you're giving your life to him, when you're serving him. But, but am I only serving him for what I can get out of him? Well, you know what, man, in two weeks, I got this thing coming up. I better live right. I better live right these next couple weeks because I really want that from God. Hey, a lot of Christians live that way. Oh, shoot, okay, that's past. I got what I wanted from God. Now I can kind of relax a little bit, live my life the way that I want until the next big thing that comes up, and I know I need to get something from God, and, boy, I'm going to get right with him, and I'm going to live for him for these few weeks because I, I really need him to answer that prayer, right? How many Christians live that way? Probably most. We, we treat God like he's some genie in a bottle. You know, oh, I got this thing coming up. I, I better treat the genie nice so I can get everything that I want from him. That's not how God is. God's not a genie in a bottle. He is the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the creator. He deserves everything we can give him and so much more. We ought to live like that. Oh, that that could be said of our lives in relation to our service to Jesus Christ. He doesn't want anything out of me. He just wants to serve. Seems like such an oxymoron to say that that is... The, the, the way to be great is to become a servant. But God, Jesus said that so many times, especially to his disciples. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve. It's the exact opposite way for most people. I want to be great. Serve me. You come bow down at my feet. Tell me what, tell me what you want to do for me. Right? No, it's the opposite. What can I do for you? What can I do for the Lord? How can I serve? How can I get involved? That's truly the way to be great in the eyes of God. And that's all that matters. Oh, everybody wants to be great. I've sat and thought about this so many times. What's the point of greatness? What's the point of, of everybody writing about you when you're gone? What's the point of having biographies written about you? What's the point of leaving behind a great legacy? You're not there to enjoy it. You're not there to hear it. You're not there for, to hear people talking about you or any of those things. I mean, what's the point of all that? But then, to be able to stand before God and say, my name wasn't well known on earth, but I did everything I could to serve you. I did everything I could to live for you. I did everything I could to please you. Wasn't a whole lot of people that knew about me. Wasn't a whole lot that I left behind. Nobody's going to be writing books about me when I'm gone. But I did everything I could for you. Who do you think God's going to be more pleased with? 
but he's probably going to read the biographies of all those people that have been written about and say, wow, I didn't realize he did all of that stuff in his life. Let me give him another reward. I know that's not the way it works. God knows. God sees. And it's not about getting the awards or the accolades or all those other things from man. It's about getting them from Jesus Christ. Let's get busy making New Year's resolutions, but let's make sure that we get to the heart of the issue. To be truly effective spiritually this year, you have to come to Jesus. That's the start. You'll never be effective in service for Jesus Christ if you don't know him as your Savior, if you don't have a relationship with him. You have to be willing to die to self. You have to commit to serving Jesus Christ with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Only then can we expect to make spiritual resolutions that will produce lasting fruit in the new year. So many people make New Year's resolutions. They last a few weeks, and that's it. They fade out. They quit doing it. It dies away, and then you're right back where you started. You know how you make a lasting resolution? Come to Jesus. Commit to serving him. Commit to living for him. Die to self. That's how you make a resolution that's going to last. Boy, that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that counts. New leaf or new life? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. New leaf is too easy to start writing the same old things on. A new life changes everything. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? And if you do, are you giving everything you can to him to serve him with your life? That's what counts. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for the opportunity we had to be here this morning. I pray that this would be a help to us. And I pray that we'd have some folks in here that would make some good resolutions this year to live for Jesus Christ, to set aside the weights, set aside the, the sin that so easily besets us, and to focus our sights, our mind, our efforts on Jesus Christ and serving Him and living for Him only. God, I can preach, I can give the message, I can read the verses, but only the Holy Spirit can speak to our hearts. And so I pray that you do that this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit would impress upon those that need to make those changes and that they'd be willing to do it. Be willing to make a decision this morning that they're just going to live for you, just going to do what's right, just going to serve you. Boy, what an impact that would make in their own lives, in their community, in this church if we had some people who are willing to commit to serving Jesus Christ with all their hearts. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you